So a year ago, I would have thought that's exactly what we're shifting to. And, you know, when COVID shut down and shut down the, the food system. But so far, I, I think everybody cares about where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. And they want to feel good about where it comes from. Um, but they're still looking at the price point. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Real cowboys do exist right here in the state of Washington. And they're not the kind of cowboys that you might imagine. They still ride horses. They still move cattle around in you know rough areas of land that couldn't be farmed any other way. It's pretty cool the things that they still do that you imagine. But it's also very cool to hear what new technology and what new science has done for raising beef in that old-fashioned cowboy way with cows and calves on rangeland. We talked this week with Kyler Beard of PNW Beef and find out how it actually works, how real cowboys operate here in Washington State and what he's doing in particular to protect the environment, uh, to capture carbon, to improve, improve soil health on the land that he's connected with, and even use his cows to help prevent forest fires, which is a cool thing considering the pressure that we've had uh, for the possibility of wildfires in recent years here in Washington State. It's, it's pretty incredible all the things that cows can do if they're managed correctly, and he shares a lot of that with us. Also had kind of a unique way of connecting with him where I just stumbled upon where he was on his horse moving cattle in on rangeland, just happened to bump into him, and we had the conversation after that. So you'll enjoy this for sure. Also, our sponsors are Manor Insurance Group based in Linden, Washington, where I am here today, and uh, they have offices down in California and Arizona as well. But they were founded by a high school classmate of mine, great guy, very trustworthy team, several other people on their team that I know and have known for a long time as well, and they're all about planning ahead. They have that nice local touch of really getting to know you, uh, being personable, understanding your unique needs, and again, planning ahead to protect your financial future rather than just being that person you call when things go wrong. Mana Insurance Group, manainsurancegroup.com is their website. Also, the Dairy Farmers of Washington supporting the podcast with a generous uh, sponsorship. We so appreciate what they do to tell the stories of Washington dairy farmers and dairy products and all the cool things that are going on with that, including things like fit milk uh, and and different stuff that uh, is happening here in Washington State that's really cutting edge. WaDairy.org is the website. They also have a full virtual farm tour there. WaDairy.org. W-A dairy. All one word, normal spelling. WaDairy.org. Check it out online. Now we go to Ellensburg, Washington, where we talk with Kyler Beard of PNW Beef. So I knew that you had some ground that you ran cattle on by Highway 97. And so I drove by there today. You didn't know if you were going to be available or not. And there you were in the woods. Explain what, what you were doing, how that this happened. Well, I, I knew what I was doing. I was wondering what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> some city guy in a car trying to turn around on the entrance to the woods. Yeah. Um, we we're just moving cattle across the highway. So right now we're, we're trying to get to all the grass that we've got. Everybody's worried about wildfires. So we're, 
building little strips next to the highway and moving cattle back and forth and had just moved some cattle across the highway and was headed down to to get my dog some water as you were pulling up to, I think, get rid of some water. <laughs> I was looking for a spot. I didn't know what I could find out there. And here's this cowboy out in the woods. But, um, and you had told me, yeah, you were moving cattle and it had something to do with uh, kind of fire prevention. So you guys are basically using cattle to graze down grass to keep kind of a fire line up there. There's no fire right now, but... Yeah, so it's not specifically, I'm not doing it for fire, but I I got a new lease, so we're in a drought, um, and actually found an opportunity to go talk to more people, um, and since everybody's worried about it, fire prevention is is one of the benefits to having cattle come reduce the fuel load on your property, um, and so everybody's starting to call me, and they are, they're wondering when I'm going to get to their place with the cows, um, and we already do rotational grazing, so we'll put a lot of animals in one small area for a short amount of time and get off of it and keep moving so i just adjusted my grazing plan so we're going to go down the highways and kind of move back and forth on each side until we have a a little fire line in between the highway and everybody's property just so that someone doesn't get out and and mow it or do something else with their property before i can get there intensive rotational grazing that you're describing that's become i don't want to say trendy people are starting to do it but it's mimicking like the ancient cycles of animals in the land, right? Kind of. Everybody, everybody talks about buffalo, and I don't think buffalo ever made it out here this far. Yeah. And so my first experience with rotational grazing actually came from a business school. They're talking about it purely from an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you can double the amount of feed you're growing, which means you need half the property that you have, can run more cattle, and then all these other benefits come along with it. And so that really was my start in it was the economics. Yeah. Um, and in our area, you know, soil health is something they're starting to talk about. And there's stories of, uh, there's a guy named Ben Snipes, and I really love his book. And my grandfather grew up in that same area and knew some people that rode for him. And he was one of the first cattlemen to come into this this area, rode over from Fort Dalles. And he talks about cresting the top of... Um, it would be Goldendale, basically, by Fort Simcoe, yeah. and said there's just waist-high bunch grass everywhere with not a cow on it, which sounds amazing, but as a challenging paradigm, there was no big herds of buffalo. Yeah. There was wild game. Um, I think mainly the Yakima Indian were fishermen, mm-hmm. and, and they would hunt. Um, but, you know, looking at a bunch of tall, dead, standing feed, is that a good thing or a bad thing as far yeah. as soil health goes? And I don't know that there's a, a lot of knowledge in what was happening to it here, whether that would just come through and get burned um, or, or what was going on. But yeah. um, my, my paradigms are starting to shift more toward what is healthy and, and what isn't healthy um, and really looking down more than I am looking across the field. And there's, I mean, you talk about being attracted to this kind of management style of your rangeland and grassland being, you know, the economic benefit being a positive for you, but there's an environmental benefit to it as well then, right? Like you talk about soil health, that kind of grazing, and there's still, I think the science is just figuring out exactly how or why it even works, but they're finding things, at least in the reading that I've done, that show, no, the the science is really there. This This is how you build carbon in the soil. This is how you actually sequester carbon and grow healthier, more plentiful crops for your animals. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I don't geek out over that stuff too much, but I am more and more. I mean, I started yeah. with just the economics. 
Um, but figuring out that it actually is cool and trendy and regenerative agriculture is the new buzzword. <laughs> I think of it with a hashtag in front of it yeah. and use it once in a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me to just look at the ground change year to year. So the first thing that I would, would measure is just the amount of days that I could get off of a pasture with a certain amount of cows. And that went up exp- exponentially. Um, and this year it's just a drier year. And so, yeah. you know, going out and kind of taking a feed inventory early in the year, seeing what was coming up, it was really short and, and kind of frustrating because some of the grazing I did last year, I was really excited to see what it looked like this year. But the amount of plants that are growing, the amount of life in the ground that's coming up was really good. I mean, it's short, but there's a lot of different species of grass coming up and no overseeding, nothing but just a lot of stock density with cattle. And again, you look across the road and there's a lot of waist high bunch grass and it looks better. I mean, even me looking at it, you know, I'm disappointed and looking out there thinking, I, I don't know if what I'm doing is good, but then you actually get out there and you can feel a difference in the soil. I mean, as someone that wears cowboy boots quite a bit, you know, you're walking out there and it's hard, yeah. it's hard packed, you know, it would feel the compaction. Yeah. yeah. And then you get into the cow pasture, which from the road doesn't look as good, but you can feel a difference in the soil right away. You can see a difference in the amount of life that's in the plants. You can see a lot of different plant species coming up. Um, so it's, you know, the diversity in the plant type is good for multiple reasons. Um, one being because it all has serves a different purpose for the soil. But just a year like this, if you had one plant type that was set to a certain amount of rainfall, and then this year you don't get that same amount of rainfall, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And, and then plants grow differently all the time. So you have your rhizomial plants that are subsoil forming, and then you have your plants that come from seeds falling off. So that's where the rotational grazing part comes from grazing it a different time every year and giving it enough rest. So I graze the pastures down maybe shorter than what some people would like, mm-hmm. um, but we're looking at the amount of grass that's left that we call it the residual height and having a lot of different species of grass out there, which is kind of... Um, kind of strange for the area that i'm in i mean there's a good mixture of each kind of plant so they normally like one more than the other so even bunching them up they really graze one section off before they get to the other section um so that's kind of a challenge that i'm trying to learn and do a better job of and figure out how to get water and all my fencing up and in a year like this um really seeing the warm season plants take over and so kind of an opportunity in my mind in a drought year to be able to to change some of the plant type that's out there. So just from the plants that are thriving and coming up, they're, they're going to have a better chance to get going than some of the other ones. But then we're also doing some overseeding around the high, high animal impact areas, yeah. the water troughs, the mineral tubs. And so then we're trying to put those in areas that we feel like needs a little bit of help. Yeah. All the, the art and science of farming and ranching. I mean, a lot of people think, Oh, well, you know, raising beef you're an animal farmer well you're both you have to be a crop farmer too you know, those dogs fighting over there yeah dogs are fighting always got to love a good animal interruption during the podcast it's not yeah. the first time yeah now that i called him over that you're pup i don't know what the pup's name was but uh he or she was chewing on my hand a little bit earlier here hopefully the video caught it yeah <laughs> that was awesome but uh, what I was going to say is, you know, all of this goes into producing that food. So you aren't just an animal farmer. You're a crop farmer at the same time in the whole system, working with kind of the natural system of rangeland, which isn't like heavily controlled or cultivated, working with animals that, 
you know, animals have a mind of their own and they do their things and trying to manage them and then the plants and, and then really farming the soil, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. That's a lot that you've got to be thinking about as you produce what you do. Yeah. Well, and really, I just want to be a cowboy and, <laughs> and I want to move cattle around. So yeah. I, I have a lot of people try to call me a farmer and I always try to stop yeah. them. Yeah. But well, I think you're, you're heading in that direction, whether you want to or not. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it's, there's a lot of science behind it. It's, you know, yeah. complex. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys, you know, but there's certain things that you can look at. And then when you do make a mistake, yeah. try to figure out how to not do it again. That's the main thing is just the thought that you have and yeah. what you're trying to achieve. And then if you do do something that wasn't good. Yeah. Don't do it again or figure yeah, out how you pay can do attention it to what you're doing so you know, okay, I'm going to do it differently next time rather than not know, like, what was it that we did there? Yeah. And also the fact that even if that's not really your thing, you're at least listening to the people who are really into it and saying, yeah. what can I glean from, you know, their books, their videos, their whatever about how to, this can be done better and better? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for getting people that are really good at what they're doing to come help me if I can. Yeah. So talk about what you produce, beef, P&W beef. So the, the P&W beef kind of came, so, so that's a little bit separate. So I, mm-hmm. I started out as a custom grazer, other people's cattle, other people's yep. property. I worked for another local rancher and really started out more as a grass guy. Um, and then my real, I don't want to say, it, I guess it's a passion, but love horses, love dogs, and was able to kind of have a knack for getting in my stockmanship and the cattle handling. Yeah. So I was taking cattle that were undervalued from a sale barn, uh, which would be smaller cattle, lightweight, generally means they haven't, they got separated from their mom early. Maybe they haven't had enough vaccines. You really don't know what happened. But then when they go to the sale barn, they're stressed out. They're getting mixed with a lot of different animals and bringing them back. So there's a certain weight that people don't want to buy because they're too small and more susceptible. They would call them high risk to to getting Mm -hmm. sick. Um, and so I would take those cattle and put some weight on them, get them double vaccinated and resell them or run them on grass and needed a cheap feed source, which most feedlots are all built next to a feed source somewhere or dairies, just like, yeah. you know, where you guys are at. And so I was looking around over here in Iron Horse Brewery, um, was a, a pretty big brewery in our area. And so I called and kind of BS'd them a little bit. And, you know, I, I know what it takes. I can move all the all the brewers grain that you have, have having no idea how big they were. Yeah. So they're actually doing about 60,000 ton of spent grain a week. And so, so just for a little cattle operation, I was mainly doing backgrounding is what you would call that when you mm-hmm. take high risk cattle. Um, That's what we talked with Camus Ubalocker about yeah. here on the podcast last year. And yeah. yeah. He explained how, so you were doing similar kind of thing in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And a little bit, uh, smaller weight so I would get done with it and then the cattle I have would generally go to grass or then go to someone like Camus um, when they're even a little bit bigger than that mm-hmm. so I was really kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel buying you know cattle that were 300 to 400 pounds yeah getting um, them healthy getting them healthy yeah, yeah. And, and trying to wean cattle I mean because weaning is another part that can kind of be hard on cattle sometimes and so a lot of that was trying to get the cattle settled when they would show up and you know trying to get them to look to me for where to go, show them where water's at, show them where feed's at. Um, and then that just translates to the rest of their life being lower stress if they understand to look to you for where to go and and not be scared of when you're around them interacting with them. 
Um, so back, back to the feeding part of it. So I ended up getting brewer's grain from Iron Horse. Um, that started Iron Horse Brewery right in Ellensburg there. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Six miles from my place. That's how far the truck is. <laughs> awesome. Um, and so then that turned into, uh, you know, I, I had that commodity and then I also feed a bakery byproduct mm. that's stuff that comes back off the, the shelf that they grind up or, you know, stuff that wasn't good enough to make it into the, the human food consumption to start yeah. with. But the cows probably love it. Oh, it's, it's sweet. I mean, it, it smells perfect and, <laughs> and the birds love it too. I can't keep those things away. Um, yeah. And so started feeding that to cattle and I thought, I wonder what it would taste like if we finished some beef on it. And this was right almost a year and a half ago. So right when we we were going to sell the cattle is when COVID hit. Yeah. And, and my plan was to sell them custom as many as I could. And then we were just going to sell the rest and the big, packing plants had backups and everybody was selling meat like crazy so we thought oh we should should get in that game so we had some some dates already for usda um and so we started processing the first cattle that we had fattened on this this ration and the flavor is i don't know like nothing i've ever tasted i don't want to say it's the best steak in the world but it renders differently it's got great flavor i mean i had some other stuff in my freezer that i came back and Ended up using it for dog food after I, <laughs> after I was eating some of this. So you got you spoiled yourself. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of a nice surprise, and I mean, really, just a dumb cowboy that was feeding cattle, and I was finishing cattle because I had all these products to background cattle, and uh, that kind of jump started the the P and W beef, and so then we've been selling subscriptions and trying to trying to figure out how to move whole animals and do a little better job planning because with COVID, I mean, we moved you know, 40 head in one month. And I just thought, oh man, let's go. This is going to be the way of the future. Right. And it slowly has declined from there. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I, I ramped up and made sure I had enough cattle yeah. to keep going yeah. at the rate we were. So it's been a learning curve yeah. um, and, and really make, made a lot of new friends, butchers, barbecue enthusiasts. And yeah. I, I didn't even know where a tri-tip came from last year. And now I'm talking about steaks that other people haven't heard of. <laughs> So are you, you, you must be a real steak lover then. Have you always been? I, I wasn't. I, I grew up in a rodeo family. Yeah. And so the only thing that we would eat were bucking bulls that had gotten injured. <laughs> and so hamburger was the only way to go. Well, I grew up in a family <laughs> with uh, dairy in the background. So the only yeah. beef we got was like half a coal cow who was probably pretty old and had milked a lot. And yeah. then it would go through the local butcher and they'd cut it thin and it would sit in the freezer for six months and then throw it on the grill. No, probably at that time it was probably in the oven. <laughs> yeah. Overcook it until it's well done. Plus. Yeah. So I was the same when I was a kid, I didn't like steak. Yeah. And mom, usually if we were getting more beef, it was put it all in the hamburger. Yeah. We didn't do steak. It was only later in life that I realized, wow, this can actually be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same, same way here. So when you would get your steak, would your mom cut, Cut a cube of butter and put a little slab on top of it. Oh no, was well no, it no, was it was even that. drier than that. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it gotcha. was like leather. Yeah, and she'd probably say the same thing. She doesn't cook them like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting being around the other cowboys or the ag community, you know. And now we're cutting steaks pretty thick, so the the majority of our steaks are an inch and a half plus. Um, and then that way you can get a good medium rare, good sear on the outside mm -hmm. and not overcook it. And I don't know how many of the old guys got it and what am I going to do with that? You know, and they want to cut it in half right away. Right. Yeah. Uh, That's just the old way. Yeah. So talk about growing food 
like that for people? What what what's the feedback that you're getting from people who are eating your food and and that connection that's being? I know a lot of people over in even Seattle are buying the beef that you produce. Yeah, there's some people that really care about the story and and really want to come out. Um, and I kind of we've got ourselves in a funny spot, so our stuff is fairly marbled. Um, it's not going to be prime, but it's going to be high choice that that eats better. Mm-hmm. And so originally I thought I was going to be selling the story of, you know, we're feeding stuff that would have ended up in a landfill. Right. And instead of hauling it, you know, somebody would have taken that feed if I didn't. So it would have gotten fed to dairy cattle or fed to something, but it would have been trucked a hundred miles instead of six. Right. Um, so, it, you know, that part of it I thought would be interesting that people would get excited about. Yeah. And so far there's been a handful that have gotten excited about it and a handful of people that are excited about supporting local and then there's a whole lot of them that have tasted it that that like the flavor and are coming back so the flavor yeah and so for me i mean i love uh feeling like i'm doing something good so for quite a while in my life you know i'd of course like any high school kid i didn't know what i wanted to do and my grandpa had a rodeo company so i did that for quite a while with him and and it was a a pickup man and traveling around and was kind of on my way. He was on his way out with his rodeo company yeah, and a family business. I wanted to do something else. So I was riding horses and really enjoyed that, but didn't, didn't seem like it was exactly what I wanted to do and went and helped some people move cows and thought I want to be a, a cowboy having no idea what it would turn into. And so now yeah. it feels really good to actually be, you know, not only, not only the cattle feeding side of it and feeding my community, yeah. um, you know, but also the, just what cattle can do for the planet when it comes to a soil health, you know, reducing the wildfires, growing more plants that sequester more carbon. Um, I mean, I, I think all that stuff is really cool, really admirable. So that makes me feel, feel better aside from the feedback. You know, I really get, get a lot of benefit out of what I'm doing. Feel like I'm doing something good for the the community. That's awesome. How far back does, you know, rodeo and cattle and all that stuff go in your family? In my immediate family, my parents weren't in agriculture at all. Oh, really? I actually grew up on the west side of the state. Mm. And for some reason, I mean, I came out of the womb with a cowboy hat. And (laughs) neither one of my parents were into it. You know, my my dad um, grew up in the, his family is from the rodeo side. Mm. And he was kind of the black sheep of the family. And he liked cooking, cleaning, you know, loved animals and loved to ride horses. But you know, he would have a pair of jorts before jorts were cool and riding his horse bareback and would make, <laughs> drive my grandpa nuts. Yeah. Um, and, and for some reason, my dad didn't really get along with my grandpa that great. Mm. But every summer I can remember since I was a kid, I spent with my, my grandparents. So mm. I almost had, you know, the summertime I was a, a cowboy and the rest of the time I lived on, on the west side of the mountains. And yeah, where did you live on, in western Washington? The first place I remember is LaConnor. Really? So right up right in Tulip Country. on the water there. Yeah. And then it's we Gadget moved. and Island County there. Yeah. So moved around a little bit after that and then came back here in high school. What? So what about your granddad and even farther back than that? Is it in the in the family blood going way back? Um, farming and cattle? Kind of the offshoot cowboy thing is. So my, my great-grandfather's last name was Van Bell and was from Sunnyside. Okay. And his parents had immigrated from Holland. And he wanted to be a cowboy, so he actually mm. ran away from home wow. um, and went and worked on ranches. And he's old enough, I never met him, but yeah. um, he came back and had a rodeo company, and that's how my grandfather met my, my grandma. And so he's always been, 
into horses and not so much cattle, but we were around livestock. Um, and so for me, I wasn't around cows until I was, I mean, I helped other people. Um, mm-hmm. but really until I owned cows, you know, I had a hard time telling if a cow was wet or dry. So that means if she's milking and would have a calf right. or, or doesn't, you know, and, yeah. and got a big education. So thanks to that unnamed school that I was telling you about, you know, they, they talk about how to make, <laughs> make money and doing paradigm shifts. So one way is to buy undervalued cows. Yep. Um, but there's normally a reason that those undervalued cows are going somewhere. So yeah. I, I didn't know what to look for or what to buy. So I got yeah. a, that first year got a pretty good education in that. Um, but being around dogs and horses and, you know, being able to figure out where animals are going or how to move them to sort them. I was around that my entire life. So you learn how to be a cow guy. Still learning. Still learning. <laughs> yeah. Well, any good cow guy is always learning something. Yeah. Right. Hopefully. And they, but they talk about that on farms. I, from my dairy background too, I know, you know some people are kind of more crop guys or machinery guys and some guys are cow guys and they just have, it's an art where they can read a cow and tell how she's doing, um, know what to look for, and are just great at moving them, really confident and calm around them, and just keep the cows happy and healthy. Yeah, that's not me. <laughs> I could have never, never done that. I always thought it was cool, you know, that my grandpa was that way. Yeah. Um, especially my mom's dad was he. He was a cow guy, and when he had to retire and sell the cows from the dairy. That was real hard for him not to have those animals. I mean, he loved them, being around them, and yeah. and he could read them. But I, I can't imagine that, and I can't imagine being in your position, not having grown up with it in my backyard, then having to learn it as an adult. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, fortunately, I was young and dumb. And so I was. I started it when I was still confident in my own abilities. So if I, if I had to do it now, there's no way I would. So what do you think about this whole scene of, food and local food being an emphasis. I mean, it sounds like you guys are kind of connecting to that, especially since COVID, as you were describing, and doing this like direct marketing of beef, which is kind of a new trend, but I think it's where more things need to go. What's your sense of of people's perspective on the food system and and if they really understand what goes on in in raising their food? I I think it's changed a lot in in the last year. So a year ago, I would have thought that's exactly what we're shifting to. And, you know, when COVID shut down and shut down the the food system and you couldn't get meat in the grocery stores and restaurants were closed and it flipped it upside down. I mean, I would have thought it's exactly what's going to happen and it's going to take over. But so far, I I think everybody cares about where their food comes from Mm -hmm. and they want to feel good about where it comes from. Um, But they're still looking at the price point. So it, you know, for me, it's a, I need to find a bigger, big enough customer base of, of everybody that, that cares where their food comes from. Cause there's no way I can be as efficient as the, the big corporations that are producing food right now. I mean, they're, they're really good at what they do and they can do it a lot cheaper than what I can do it. And that's kind of what everything is based on is, you know, depending on what their priorities are, um, but I, I am excited. I mean, I really like what I do, and I wish I could get more people out to to see what the cattle look like, see where they're at, yeah. what's going on. And I don't know how to do that on a, a bigger level. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you get pretty caught up in just the day-to-day stuff. You know, I got lucky enough that you just drove back past me today, but <laughs> normally that's what has to happen. I mean, my... Yeah. If my friends want to see me and hang out normally, they get in the passenger seat of my pickup. <laughs> you got to come along because I'm working. <laughs> yeah. Stuff to do. Yeah. Uh, 
What you say, though, about going back to what you said about price point, I think you're right. And it kind of bugs me, to be honest, because, yeah, I think there are some people who, you know, definitely care about where their food comes from and hearing that story. I mean, that's why we're doing this podcast. More and more people are connecting with that. But so many people, even if they do care about that, are still watching that price point. And for some reason, I think in our culture as Americans, we've been trying to, oh, you know, we got the 35 cents off coupon or, you know, we're always just looking to shave a little bit more off what we pay for our food. I don't, for me lately, I've just been stepping back from that. I am not a rich person by any stretch of the imagination, but for crying out loud, I can spend a little bit more on my food. And I've been trying to do that if it's something that I can buy that's grown locally or regionally in Washington state or in the Pacific Northwest, great. Or even just making sure it's grown in the U.S. And that to me is worth, what will it be? Another 10, 20%? For most of my food, I can still manage that. What, you know, how many dollars am I going to save at the grocery store if I'm just trying to shave that last little bit off? Yeah. It doesn't add up to that much. Yeah. Yeah, that that is a hard thing for me too. And I mean, I, you know, go into farmer's markets and stuff and there's, there's customers out there and people care and they're excited about the story and they're happy to shake your hand. And, you know, those are the ones you want to find. And there's also people that walk by and they, you know, look at what you're doing. And really it to me makes me almost feel bad. And then I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not living like a rich man. I don't have a, (laughs) you know, a a lot of stuff and a big fishing boat and going on family (laughs) vacations. Um, You know, but it, the, the customers are out there finding them. I'm not sure how, but it's yeah. really changed talking about what you're buying and you're looking at where it comes from and how it was produced. I mean, I, I do the same thing and buying swag for P and W beef, you know, bought it from a company that is in the U S but then you look at where the hat comes from and it's, you know, yeah. I, I look around a little bit to see, is there a company in the United States that is going to make everything start to finish that I could, could mm-hmm. get it from. So I, I'm starting to shift a little bit, you know, and the, the Pacific Northwest. And so, with the company being P and W beef, we've kind of shifted. We were, we're shipping it everywhere. And that's mm-hmm. been a little bit of a fiasco with UPS and stuff getting oh, shipped yeah. around. So yeah. We, in the last few months, that's gotten especially bad Yeah, from what I've been hearing. So we're, we're really trying to focus more on our local community and then also the subscription. So you can use the whole animal, not just by the prime ribs, the ribeyes. And so that's a little bit of an adjustment to the customers that I have. Um, but it's kind of shifted everything. So, you know, I'm more, more interested in the demographic that's local. And so I'm looking at other local businesses and figuring out how we can work together and help each other and, you know, focusing more on our community, which is larger than Kittitas County in my mind. But, um, you know, there's a, another spice company that we've been working with that's from, from Tacoma. Mm. That's not, not super local to our county, right? but God dang, it's good. And the, the barbecue community in the Pacific Northwest, I had no idea existed. Yeah. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's Texas style on there, you know, there's butchers and it's amazing to me to get on Instagram and look at these big <laughs> accounts and look at all these people that are coming up and then find out that they're two hours from me. Yep. It's really a cool thing that I think a lot of people just need to be finding each other. I mean, there needs to be just a lot of matchmaking going on between foodies, people who love to eat the stuff, people who love to cook it, prepare it, people who grow it. We're all pretty close together. And the way our food system has worked historically has kind of kept people apart. It's just a system. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that way. And yeah, hey, 
just thinking about this now, social media is one of the things that's helping deal with that because you can connect with people on that personal level and be like, oh, they grow food. I want to buy it from them because I know them. I see their pictures from day to day. I've heard their story. That's what I want to invest in rather than just whatever's on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. And the hard part for me is a lot of people want to buy, and, and I completely understand this, you know, they're, they're having dinner. They want to buy two ribeyes. And the yep. way we have our business structured is it's in 25 pound boxes. So you're going to yep. get an assortment of meat. And I think that's a little bit of a, a turnoff, but. Well, there's problems with the laws too, even the federal laws on USDA certification and whatnot that make that pretty tough to do. Right. To get it's, it's tough certified. to get, get yeah. like a USDA certified butcher to do your stuff. Like you were talking about dates that you got a book way in advance i'm hearing this is just a nightmare even to get that done yeah and it's possible but at a scale to really feed people and compete with the major food systems i mean economy of scale is one of the biggest things that i run into so we have 60 head that we're feeding right now with that ration i was telling you about and it's barely enough to get it to come out of my mixer box so you know it would feed a lot better if i had 120 but then i need more customers more more processing dates and then the other thing that I run into on a small level that I'm at now is if you do get USDA dates, most of the USDA processors that I can get are more of a custom butcher background. And so I want the nice trendy steaks that are, are really good. And one of the guys that you had on your podcast, uh, Bobby Morrison. Yeah. And we kind of reconnected over Instagram just we went because. went to high school together, right? Yeah. We found out later. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But I was just seeing his meat cutting photos that he was putting up. Yeah. And so I reached out to him again on, on Instagram. I was on Instagram for about a month and made two of the, two of the best friends I've had over the last year. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so he kind of helped me out with the cutting instructions and what stakes I should get and not get. And the processor that he was working at is where I go now. And he actually told me, you know, you want this steak, just don't get it here because it's mm. not going to be good. So, mm. you know, and they're great. The processor that I'm going through is really good. They give you a wide assortment of cuts you can get. The amount of money they spend on infrastructure is all economy to scale too. So yeah. they don't have the same equipment. So there's some of those hurdles to jump, but there really are, are bigger people that are kind of, there's a lot of middlemen in there and there's ways to get around them. I shouldn't say ways to get around them, but there's other people willing to help yeah. smaller guys. So it's just a matter of, figuring out how to do it. Um, And I mean, I think there's lots of opportunities if you want to get it, but it's a, it's a long road to hoe. I mean, I, it's a whole nother business for me and I really just wanted to be a cowboy (laughs) looking at grass and seeing which direction my head. You want to be doing Instagram marketing and all that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I get a lot of help from other people. I don't, I don't run our Instagram page for P and W beef. Thank God. Or I'd be getting torn up for grammatical errors, (laughs) bad sense of humor. (laughs) Tell me if I've got this right, though. I mean, USDA is important because there are only... USDA is a a certification that a butcher shop or a slaughterhouse has as far as being inspected and being up to that standard. There are only so many of those, and it takes folks a lot of money to get to that place and get their facility to be certified, USDA. But if you're processing meat... You're taking animals that you've grown and turning them into steaks that has to, because of the way federal law is right now, go through a USDA facility to be able to sell it by the cut yeah. rather than a share of an animal, which most people aren't able to do. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of where the rub is, right? To be able to find that processing, which is more expensive, and make that happen so people can just buy, you know, a couple of ribeyes and make dinner happen. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I could sell a couple of ribeyes, but along the same lines of what you're you're talking about, I couldn't if I wasn't USDA certified. But I still have a hard time moving the whole cow. So I would love to sell it in shares of beef. Mm-hmm. Um but there's a lot less of those customers out there that can afford to buy the beef and afford to put it in their freezer. Yeah. Um, and have the big deep freeze to hold it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and then the other thing for me, um, you know what it's like texting me and calling me on the phone. I mean, it's not the easiest guy in the world to get in touch with. <laughs> I've dealt with far worse. <laughs> uh, and so getting custom cutting instructions and dealing with the butcher mm. and back, and I mean, doing enough of that, I thought, I, I really don't want to do this anymore. So with the USDA stuff, I, I know this is a little bit contrary to the point that you're trying to make, but I like having stuff cut to my instructions. I feel yeah. like we have a pretty good idea of where the value is and the stakes that other people don't know about and aren't getting. Yeah, because there's different ways you can cut up a side of beef. Oh, absolutely. Depending on what you want to get out of it. And yeah. It may be good or it may not be. Yeah. Or it may be a dairy cow that gets turned into hamburger, like I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. sometimes hamburger is pretty good. So you like like being able to to kind of determine that. For me, it's just easier if we have a packing list and we know what we're going to put into an assorted beef box that, you know, so we're the main box that I would like to sell that would help me move whole animals is going to be 10 pounds of burger. You'll get a couple pounds of something that could be stew meat. It could be marrow bones it could be soup bones then you're going to get 10 pounds of roast and five pounds of steak and we kind of have the steaks tiered so for me you know i can give someone a packing list and we go put that in there opposed to trying to get butcher dates at a million different places and (laughs) you know everybody has different standards they hold themselves to and different ways they cut um and you can't get butcher dates with them either so i mean it's not even just a usda or a, a washington certification they're really hard to find for any butcher dates Crazy. I guess what I'm interested in is finding that middle ground. You know, farmers markets, like you talked about earlier, that can be a great thing. I'm all about that. People actually coming and hearing the real story and connecting directly with the producer. I know those things are hard to pull off because you, if you're a big operation, you aren't going to really fit the farmers market mold. But usually, the small operations are just a few people, and then somebody's got to stand at the booth, you know, every Saturday or Wednesday or whenever it is, and it just becomes hard to manage. And we will never be able, I think, to move a majority of our food, feed a majority of people that way. You yeah. know, it's, it costs more. It takes time. It's not just like swinging by the store. But then I also think there will always be the other end, which is the, the big system stuff, the lower end product. You know, not everyone can afford to even spend an extra, like, you know, I was shaming people earlier, like, come on, you could spend a little yeah. bit more. But there are a lot of people who can't afford to do that. Yeah, And there, there will always have to be an option for them as well. But what about that middle ground? Somebody like me that just wants to swing by the store, I'm not rich. I don't, you know, can't spend buku bucks on it, but I'll spend a little bit more if I know that it's something that's from the Pacific Northwest, you know, or, or grown, yeah. you know, grown by somebody like you who cares. Yeah. But in that kind of middle ground, that seems to be the part that we're struggling with right now in our food system. Yeah, it, it really is. And then the same thing with the economy of scale. So... You know, obviously that's something I've thought a lot about is just from an animal, humane animal treatment standpoint, you know, how cool would it be? I shouldn't say cool, but how nice would it be for the animal if I could send them through the same processing facility they've been sent through? So they just think it's another routine 
mm-hmm. vaccine. It's something they could be trained through, um, you know, and then that's that's the end for them, and they go into the food system opposed to being loaded up and taken somewhere else or having people they don't know around. Yep. And so then the problem with that is, of course, the amount of money it would cost me, and then if I'm going to try to get them processed, I mean, that's a part-time job. I mean, the amount I'm processing now, that's going to be one day a month for six people and I've got to have all the equipment and you start adding up what that would look like for, you know, even all of us to have a lot of smaller processors available. And that's the hard part is the the economy of scale. How do you get enough animals through that to keep everybody busy? Yeah. Um, And I don't, I don't have an answer to that, but I think everybody's trying to figure it out. Yeah. What about the people who say, ah, people shouldn't be eating beef. I, mean, I think you've already described some things that, that show there's a different story that maybe doesn't make the headlines and people are debating about the carbon footprint of beef and whether it's a good thing or not or whether they need to do a meatless Monday. You're talking about, you know, stewarding the hill, stewarding the hillsides and the rangelands and building soil health and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That doesn't even seem to enter that conversation most of the time. No. I, I mean, there's been some studies out that were false about cattle. But when you're looking at at really how much emissions cattle are emitting in greenhouse gases, it's 2%, with the majority being transportation and electricity. Um, And, and I mean, there are studies out there. They're they're not hard to find. Uh, But for me, cows are, if used correctly, the best tool that you can get to save the planet. Um, And everybody wants to talk about buffalo. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen buffalo out here, and there's a lot of improvements that that have happened since buffalo were roaming. And, you know, domesticated animals that handle well, one, their life is better because they're not stressed out when you're moving them. They understand where to go. You know, with an electric hot wire, you can place cattle where you want them. You can get them out when you need to. Um, And just the the fact that you can double the amount of plants that are growing in ground that would be sitting, um, that means that's twice as much carbon that's being sequestered. And then if you want to talk about the methane that they're emitting, which is another hot topic, is completely different. Um, than carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere from fossil fuels or, mm-hmm. you know, other, other, other things. Um, it breaks down in a shorter life cycle. It's natural. You know, they, they break it down. It goes and into the sources from the plants that, yeah. Yeah. And then Versus it feeds fossil the plants. fuels that, yeah. 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 The methane breaks down into carbon dioxide. The plants pull it back into the soil and actually helps the plants stay growing. Um, so I, I mean, to the, the people that are, I would say, do more research. I mean, get out and look at it. And there's there's a lot of stuff that isn't good by everybody, but, I mean, it, it, people are trying to do a better job than what we're doing. And believe me, ranching and agriculture are starting to understand that we're being heavily scrutinized. Mm-hmm. And it's time to start, you know, making sure we are doing the best job that we can. And a lot of people already were. But, yeah. you know, as hard as we're being scrutinized now, I think more people are starting to realize it's time to, I mean, to yeah. dot our T's, dot our eyes and cross our t's well thanks for what you do and the care that you put in to the food that you're producing and thanks for being willing to chat with us here on the podcast <laughs> having me out to your place here and also yeah. showing me a little bit out out at the pasture land and the range land out there on the highway yeah you got to inspect some of it closely i <laughs> I, I see well, I, I hope you get to come back because I want to show you around a little bit more. And I mean, some of the stuff that's happening, I am so excited about, you know, and especially in a year like this where it is doom and gloom because of the amount of moisture we have and, you know, all of the environmentalists that are, you know, trying to keep us from what, what we're wanting to do. And, 
And one thing that's a little bit interesting to me is if you're building houses for a living and you have your own business, you know, not only do you have to try to build houses and do the book work, but you definitely don't have to go out and try to advocate for your, <laughs> your line of work just so that you can keep doing what you're, you're doing for a living. So it's kind of. But farming I'm, is in that position. Absolutely. That's why I'm, you know, hap- happy to run into people like you and appreciate what you're doing is what I was trying to get to <laughs> in a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think people, a lot of folks who aren't connected to any end of it aren't even aware necessarily that people in the farming community growing our food feel kind of under fire, kind of under the gun. And that's not necessarily a good place to be where people are making the best decisions and doing the, you know, they're trying their best to do best they can. But it's a shame that people have to feel like they have to look over their shoulder. Who's going to be upset with them next, you know? Yeah. Shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Well, thank you again. I appreciate your time yeah. chatting with us here. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 